What a blessing it is to be here with you, worshiping God in God's house today. Amen. I want to invite you to open with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We're starting a brand new book of the Bible today, the book of Philippians. And over the next few months, we'll be walking through this great, great book of the Bible together. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, uh, raise your hand. One of our ushers will be happy to bring you a copy of the Bible this morning so you can look on uh, with uh, your neighbor or yourself and the Bible in your lap. We have one right here down on the, on the front row, guys. And uh, yeah, we want you to have a copy of God's Word this morning as we go through uh, the book of Philippians together. Now, the book of Philippians, uh, we're, I'm going to give you some background and some history on it in a couple of weeks, but this morning we're really going to dial into uh, the first couple of verses. And, uh, but the book of Philippians has some of the most quoted verses in all of the Bible. In fact, I, I wouldn't be surprised if your favorite verse from, from the Bible is actually in the book of Philippians. It, it just is full of those verses that people love to take and to put on coffee mugs and to put on bumper stickers and to put on t-shirts. It's just full of those kinds of verses. And so I want to share with you just some of them that you might be familiar with that really stand out as, as kind of these, these you know, verses that people just love and love and love, their favorite verses. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Philippians 1.21 says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 1.27 says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 2.4 says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 2.10 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 2.12 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 3.8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 3.14, I press on towards the goal for the price of the upward call in Christ Jesus. 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. 4.6, don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, think on these things. 4.11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 4.13, I bet, I bet a lot of you love this one. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And 419, my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory. Now, I, Philippians, again, is just packed full of these verses that people love, that it speaks to our hearts. You know, if I was the Apostle Paul up in heaven, I'd be sitting up there saying, hey, could I get some royalties on all of these T-shirts, all of these coffee mugs, all of these mouse pads? You know, you're putting my language on all of this. But I want, what I want to communicate to you this morning and as we walk through this together over the next few months is that as powerful as these verses are in isolation, in context they even carry more weight and authority. And so we're going to walk through verse by verse, word by word, this book of Philippians, this letter that Paul wrote. And what you're going to find is that there is a richness to these verses that, yes, stand out, but even as we look at them in their context, they even carry more meaning 
and more fulfillment and more power for us today. So Philippians chapter 1, we're going to look at the first two verses today. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray even as we're embarking on uh, this great journey over the next few months, going through the book of Philippians together, Lord, that you would stir our hearts. Lord, that you would give us the gift of faith. Lord, to believe in you, to trust in you. Lord, that our faith would increase, that our faith would grow. Lord, that our, our knowledge of you would grow, that our, our closeness, Lord, not just a head knowledge, but, but knowing you, as our Savior, knowing you as our King, knowing you as our God, knowing you as our friend. Lord, that that would grow and that it would deepen our walk with you as we move through this together. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today and that you would show us truth from your word, that it would be pressed deep into our hearts and into our souls. Holy Spirit, we, we invite you to, to speak to us, to, to give us, uh, we give you room today to, to move in our lives Lord, where we need correction, that you would correct us. Lord, where we need encouragement, that you would encourage us. Lord, where we need to repent of sin, Lord, that you would get, grant us that repentance today. Lord, that we could confess our sins and receive forgiveness from you again and anew. And we thank you for that restored fellowship that we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, it tells us right at the beginning, the author of this book, it is Paul. And I would argue that other than Jesus... Christ, Son of God, there has been not another single person that has shaped the course of human history over the last 2,000 years than the Apostle Paul. He has, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the letters that he has written down, the Apostle Paul, other than Jesus Christ, no other single, single figure has had an impact, a profound impact on the world, especially the Western world. But this is not the first time that we're introduced to this man named Paul in the Bible. And in fact, the, the first day that we're introduced to Paul is not a good day. It's actually a dark day. It's, it's one of the darkest days in the, the history of the early church. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning looking at who this man Paul was, reintroducing ourselves to him, reacquainting ourselves with his story, because it, it matters who the vessel is that God chose to, to write his word to us. And so we, we need to be reacquainted with who Paul was and the story and his journey of faith. And so flip back in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 is the first time that we're introduced to Paul, the apostle. And in Acts chapter 7, he's, he's not going by the name of Paul, but he's going by the name of Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel, and many young Jewish boys, Hebrew boys, were given the name Saul as paying homage to the first king of Israel. Later on in life, Paul becomes an a, a apostle to the Gentile world, and so he begins going by the Roman rendering, the Gentile rendering of that Hebrew name Saul, and he begins to go by the name Paul. And so that's how we, we know him as the Apostle Paul. But here in Acts chapter 7, we're, we're introduced the first time to this man, 
Paul, as he is called here, Saul. And what's happening here in Acts chapter 7 is there's a, a young man in the church, a, a young leader. He's been freshly appointed as a deacon to serve the, the congregation in the city of Jerusalem. His name is Stephen. And God is using Stephen in miraculous ways, in powerful ways to, to expand the kingdom of God. Stephen has a powerful ministry. And just like Jesus, false uh, accusations come against Stephen. Uh, the enemy uh, really tries to take Stephen out. And so they bring false witnesses. They put Stephen on a false trial. And Acts chapter 7 is Stephen's defense. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. It's, it's really a powerful sermon. I would encourage you to read it on your own. But Stephen got right in the faces of the people who had killed Jesus. And in verse 51, this is the kind of preaching he was preaching to them. He said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so did you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who have received the law of God as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen was a powerful preacher. He was not afraid to call sin, sin. He was not afraid to call black, black, and white, white. We need more Stevens in our land today who will stand up and preach the truth. Now, you might say amen to that. Uh, the people that heard this, this sermon didn't say amen. In verse 54, it says, When they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. How angry do you have to be at someone to grind your teeth? I've been angry before. I've never ground my teeth at someone. This, this is the height of rage. So they're filled with rage, but it says, verse 55, but Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. This great contrast between the spirit that was dominating the Jewish leadership at the time and those who were working in the church of Christ, they were filled with the spirit of rage. Stephen was filled with the spirit of God. And he gazed into heaven and he saw this vision. He, he, he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city. This is mob violence. And they stoned him. That means that they, they took large rocks and they, they pummeled him with these large rocks to kill him. Mob violence, mob execution. Not according to the rule of law. Not according to justice. This is injustice upon this young man. And it says that the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is the first time we're introduced to the Apostle Paul. 
The first time that we see him mentioned in Scripture, he's there at the death of Stephen. This Stephen's death is the first martyrdom. This is the first martyr, the first one to die for his faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul is not there stopping the mob. Paul is not there warning them. Paul is not there saying, what are you doing? No, Paul is there holding the coats of the people who are throwing stones. You see, to, to, to stone someone, you, 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 you're, you're not just, you know, tossing little pebbles. To, to stone someone, you, you must pick up the largest rock that you can find and you must hurl it at the person with all of the force and the strength that you can muster. And so to do that, you, you must take off your outer coat, your, your outer garment, so that you won't be hindered at all as you seek to inflict the, the maximum velocity of stone throwing on your victim. And so Paul, not wanting these, this mob's clothes to get dirty, he, he is there to hold the garments of those who are stoning Stephen. In verse 59, it says, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved, going down into chapter 8, Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. It broke the heart of the church. This, this young man, full of so much promise, full of so much potential, knew the word of God. When you read her sermon, he, he recounts from memory basically the whole Old Testament. So full of the Spirit, so full of the Word, so full of a servant's heart. His, his main job was taking care of the widows in the church and making sure that all of their needs were met so that the apostles could pray and could preach the Word of God. He was humble. He was always willing to, to, to teach the Word of God, to share the Word of God, to speak the truth. But on this day, this young rising star within the church his lamp was snuffed out by this riotous mob. And this persecution doesn't stop with Stephen. It spreads to the rest of the church in Jerusalem so that they have to scatter. They can't even stay in their homes anymore. They have to flee their homes to escape the persecution. Verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church. And he entered house after house and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. The first time we're introduced to the Apostle Paul is not a good day. It's a bad day. In fact, it's one of the darkest days in the history 
of the early church. You read the first few chapters of the book of Acts and, and the Holy Spirit's just moving in such a mighty way, such a powerful way. The love of Christ manifesting in their midst. People selling houses, selling land, bringing all of the proceeds into the church to the apostles to distribute so that anybody who had any need, all of their needs were met. And, and the gospel's just going forward so that thousands of people are being saved. It went from 120 on the day of Pentecost to 3,000 souls that were saved uh, on that day to just a few chapters later. They, they have just resorted to counting the men because there's such a large number. So it went from 3,000 souls just a few chapters later to 5,000 men to the point where they, they've lost track of how many people have come to Christ in this short period of time. This whole city is being is being visited by the Holy Spirit and receiving revival. But then this happens. A young man is killed for his faith in Christ. Saul, this other young man, ravaging the church, going house to house. Are there any Christians in here? Is there anyone who believes in Jesus here? Are there any followers of Jesus Christ in this house? What would you do? What would you say? Brothers and sisters, this isn't just ancient history. You understand that this happens every single day in our world. We're made aware of this, keenly aware of this, you know, we, we tend to only focus on what's right here. But there's been some events that have happened over the last few weeks in Afghanistan that has made us aware that actually there really is evil in our world. That the veil has been pulled back. We've seen the pictures. We've seen the images. We've seen the people fleeing for their lives. We've seen the desperation of souls clinging to airplanes, where are they trying to get to? Here. That's where they're trying to get. Here. And we complain about the most insignificant, trivial stuff. There's people holding on to the outside of airplanes to try and get here. I love that song we sang this morning. Give thanks with a grateful heart. Listen, we have so much to be thankful for. Amen. As I watched in, in, in utter unbelief the last few weeks, the huddled masses of people trying to escape, so desperate that they're leaving everything behind. I, I can't even, I can't, my mind doesn't even have the framework to understand that kind of desperation. I can't even understand it. But yet, that's, that's what they're experiencing here in the text. Saul going house to house. Is there any Christians here? Is there anybody who believes in Jesus here? So that they're having to flee Jerusalem. 
Because he's dragging off men and women. What a, what a, what a choice to make. With, with an armed, basically at threat of your life. Knowing that if you, if you bear witness to Jesus Christ, it will cost you your life. We don't know what it means to be a witness. We don't know. We, we think it means telling the, the grocery teller, Jesus loves you. We think that's what witnessing is. We pray for boldness that we could speak to our waiter who's serving us food, not standing there with an AK-47. God, grant me boldness. Give me an open door, God. The open doors are everywhere. We are so weak and devoid of conviction. I'm ashamed of myself. I read this, I read this article of a, of a pastor, a, a Christian leader this week who gave an interview from Afghanistan. Now, this is what he says. Pastor in Afghanistan. Definitely, they're going to kill some of the Christians. Because they want, speaking of the Taliban, they want to spread that fear and that they will not tolerate anything against them. He said also the Taliban will likely take away their children from Christian families, turning them into sex slaves and Islamic fighters. Definitely for Christians, it's just an obvious thing that the Taliban is going to take all of our kids and that they have to go through the retraining of that system and marrying the Taliban. For the boys, they will be re-educated and definitely trained as soldiers forcefully. He pointed that the Taliban will also take away Christian women and force them to convert to Islam. Definitely we trust in the Lord and pray that he is sparing his people. We believe in God and we believe that as Christians we know there is persecution. Every Muslim background believer like myself that converted to Christianity knows the consequences of conversion Islam is very clear. For the apostasy, it is death, and there is no mercy on those people. But he says, God has a purpose and a plan, and he knows what's best for his children in Afghanistan. Wow. Wow. It's absurd the things that we complain about. It's ridiculous. The things that cause us to lose our joy. We've become so comfortable with this American life. We've been so com become so comfortable with all of the blessings of God that we feel so entitled to 
comfort. We feel so entitled to pleasure. We feel so entitled to happiness. And we're not willing to do anything that would compromise those things. What's been striking to me is the swiftness with which things happened in the country of Afghanistan. How overnight, overnight, their whole country collapsed overnight. We live in America and we think, ah, nothing like that could ever happen here. <laughs> their whole system collapsed overnight. I'm not a prophet. I'm not pretending to proclaim to you that I know what the future holds. I don't. But it could hold persecution for Christians in this country. It could. It could. Are we ready for this? Are we ready for people to come knocking on our doors? Are there any Christians in this house? I pray to God that on that day I would have the faith of this Afghanistan brother that I would have the faith of some of these men and women that we read about in Acts chapter 8, that when Paul, Saul of Tarsus, came to the door, are there any believers in Jesus here? They said, yes, we believe in Jesus Christ. Later on in Acts 22 verse 4, Paul recounting his conversion he says, I persecuted this way, the way of Christ, unto death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Acts 26, 9 I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul chasing Christians from house to house, from city to city, to put them to death and putting them to death. But on the day that Stephen died, in verse 60, as he fell to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Who does that remind us of? Well, the Lord Jesus on the cross, of course. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do.
And so in answer to Stephen's prayer, the Lord Jesus had other plans for Saul. So if you'll go with me to Acts chapter 9. It says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. At this time, Christianity wasn't known as Christianity. It was known as the way. Jesus himself taught that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And so the early name for what we now call Christianity was the way. The, the, they followed the way of Jesus. So he gets permission to go and to track down Christians, to bring them back to Jerusalem, to put them on trial and to kill them for their faith. Verse 3 says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said to him, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That must have been an oh shoot moment for Saul. <laughs> the, the biggest gulp you ever had in your life. That sick feeling in the pit of your stomach. Saul was so sure he was doing the right thing. And now Jesus, risen from the dead, appears to him in such blinding light that he falls to the ground. He says, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord appeared to him and said in a vision, Ananias. He said, I'm here, Lord. I bet that was a good day for Ananias. Praying, seeking the Lord. Prayer, you know, just so faithful, so dedicated. And then Jesus appears to him. Wow. I'm here, Lord. Your servant listeneth, you know. What is it you want me to do? The Lord said to him, Rise, go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, uh, I've heard from many about this man, 
Let me just fill you in about him, Lord, in case you didn't know how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And Lord, he's here and has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And uh, FYI, I'm one of those. I know he saw a man named Ananias, but hey, my cousin's also named Ananias. Maybe, maybe you meant to call him Lord? But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and to the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul. Wow. Amazing. The power of the gospel in breaking down walls, in healing wounds, in mending divisions, in, in, in chasms where it seems like there could never be healing, where there could never be forgiveness, were mortal sworn enemies when they come to Christ are no longer enemies, but they are now brothers. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you. And let me tell you, nothing else has that power. Nothing else has that power. It's only Jesus in the gospel that can take enemies. Multi-generations of enemies who have sworn their allegiance to destroy one another. But when they submit to Christ, they are now brothers, part of the same family of God. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days he was with, was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard it were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. As you, of course, we know the rest of the story as Saul continues on this path, the plan that God had for him as a chosen instrument later being sent out as the great Apostle Paul to evangelize Europe, evangelize and go west and west and west. The Apostle to the Gentiles. So a couple of points I just have to highlight for you from the life of Paul and from these stories. If it's not abundantly clear, let me just make it explicitly clear Salvation is all of grace. Salvation is all of grace. We don't earn salvation. The gift of God, the free gift, is not for good people. 
Salvation is not for those who can keep all of the rules and do all of the right things. Salvation is for sinners. The Apostle Paul shows this to us abundantly clear. Saul is not a good man. Saul is not a godly man. Saul, before his conversion, is an evil man. He's filled with so much personal ambition and zeal that he is willing to harm and even murder others in the name of God. He is proud, he is self-righteous, and he is self-deceived. He thinks he is serving God until God shows up and says, Hello, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's not a good man. He's a sinner. But God only chooses sinners. That's the only people he has to work with. The Bible says none of us is good, none of us is righteous. The Bible even says that we don't even seek after God Salvation is not only all of grace, it's all of God. It's only from God. We are so utterly and totally dependent upon God for our salvation. There is nothing, not even an ounce of anything that we bring to the table in this transaction. It's Jesus hanging on the cross. Dying for you and dying for me. Paying the price for our sin. That is where salvation comes from. Be freed of the notion that you have contributed anything to your salvation. Be freed of the idea that you are just some wonderful creation that is this precious little snowflake and that's why God has saved you. No. It's grace, unmerited favor. Amen. Because of sin, Saul deserved the wrath of God. Because of sin, we deserve the righteous wrath of God. But because of grace... Because of grace, God has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his beloved son. Through faith in Christ, we receive forgiveness of sin. Through faith in Christ, our, our old record of wrong has been nailed to the cross. And Christ's record of perfect righteousness has been applied to our account. This is why Paul goes from, from persecuting Christians to immediately preaching and proclaiming Jesus Christ and the grace of God. Please understand, if you are a Christian today, 
It's only by the grace of God. It's only by the grace of God that God would call us. The Bible says he calls us by name. That God was pleased to reveal the truth of the gospel to us. It's the Holy Spirit that moves on our hearts, that opens our eyes. Paul in this moment was blinded by the light. And so all of us who have believed in Christ, it is not through our own intellect. It's not through our own prowess of of knowledge. It's not because we're so smart and we're, we're, we're smarter than the rest of the world. In fact, most of us would probably do really bad on an SAT. It's not because of that, okay? But God, through his mercy and his grace, has revealed to us, has opened our eyes that we see who Christ is. That, that we receive grace, the Bible says, by faith. But even the faith to believe in Christ, the Bible tells us, is a gift from God. So even the faith we exercise to believe in Christ was put there by God as a gift. The Bible says, so that no flesh may glory in his sight, that he may receive all of the glory. Now there's this lie that the enemy loves to to say and loves to share with people, loves to condemn people. The Bible says there's now, Paul of course writing Romans 8 chapter 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there's this, the enemy wants to condemn you and he, he, he spreads this lie around that God can't save you because of what you've done. Your past, the things you've done, the sins you've committed, that they're too evil, they're too wicked, they're too dark, they're too deep. You've been sinning for too long in the wrong direction. But listen, if God can save Saul of Tarsus, he can save anybody. Anybody. No one, no one is beyond the grace of God. No one is beyond the grace of God. If God can save Saul, he can save anyone. Even the members of the Taliban. Paul was a terrorist. If he lived today, we would call him a terrorist. Trying to strike fear in the heart of Christians. To get them to conform to his religion. We need to pray that God, that Jesus Christ would appear in blinding light and that he would rise up Christians like Ananias who would go and preach and proclaim the gospel. We need to pray for the martyrs like Stephen that as they bear witness to Christ with the ultimate, the ultimate bearing the ultimate witness to Christ that their faith would not fail. I got to believe that those those words that Stephen cried out, I bet they tormented Paul. As as instead of cursing, he received blessing from the hands of the people that he was murdering. Praying, interceding, standing in the gap for for the, the person who was, the people who were murdering him. 
There's a saying, it's not in the Bible, but it's an old Christian saying. It says that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That where martyrs die, churches are birthed. As Christians bear the ultimate witness for Christ. We think about that, and we, that, that, that doesn't jive, that doesn't fit with our way of thinking. Because we think this, is, we think this life is supposed to be heaven now. We, we think we're supposed to live in heaven now. We think everything's supposed to be easy and peachy and ice cream and banana floats and lazy river rides and just, just all kinds of heaven on earth now. Listen, this life is temporary. This life is a vapor. This life is here today and gone tomorrow. What difference does it make if you live 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, 70 or 80 years? It goes by like that. So what difference does it make? What punches your ticket to heaven? What difference does it make if you live 90 years, but it was all for nothing? What difference does it make if you live for 90 years, but all you have to show for it is a house and a car and a 401k that's all going to burn up in an instant? Who cares? Stephen got the good end of the deal because his life mattered for eternity. His life counted for eternity. Oh, I think I need to preach that longer because that's that was some weak and tepid clapping. <laughs> we 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 believe the American dream more than we believe the gospel. We believe the American dream more than we believe the word of God. Our value system is not a kingdom value system. It is upside down. May God bring conviction to our hearts to live for things that matter, to not just seek whatever trivial pursuits would entertain us for the next fleeting few moments. What a blessing. What a blessing that Stephen had to be the first martyr. What a blessing that God would answer his prayer and come and save Saul. What a blessing. The, seed, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Here's the, the second point I want, I want to share with you this morning. Even on the dark days, God is still working. Even on the dark days, God is still working. Jesus didn't fall asleep at the wheel. Jesus wasn't taking a nap and missed what was happening to Stephen. God didn't fail Stephen. In fact, Stephen says he looks up and he sees Jesus standing in heaven, watching the whole thing, ready to receive him into glory. Even on the dark days, God is working. God is near. God is close. The Bible declares from beginning to end that God is sovereign. 
God is sovereign. God is in control of all of the events of all of our lives over all of the earth. Even on the dark days, God is working. God is moving. Jesus is not absent from what happens to Stephen. Jesus is right there with him. Amen. Amen. Now, we love the story of the three Hebrew children in the furnace. We love that one, where Jesus is right there in the fire, and they all come walking out. We love that one. The one where they don't come walking out, where they pay the price for their lives, where they pay the price with their lives. We kind of, now let's just move on to chapter 8, and let's just kind of skip past that part. No, God's still working in that. Because God is sovereign. He answers Stephen's prayer. Jesus is standing there right with him. Ephesians 1.11 says that in Christ we have attained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. How much does God work according to the counsel of his will? Some things, a few things. Most things, 99.9% of things, no, God is working all things in accordance with the counsel of his will. And this is good news. There are some people who want to teach that God is not in control and that God is not sovereign. Because they think that the idea that God is in control and God is sovereign, it somehow makes God bad because we have bad things that happen in our life. We have tragedy that happens in our life. And so they want, they want to try to say that God is not responsible for or, or that God is not in control and that God is not sovereign. But let me tell you, the, the idea that God is not sovereign is a, is a pitiful idea. Because if God is not sovereign, that means that God is not in control. If he's not in control, he's not working in all things according to the counsel of his will. And if that is true, if God is not sovereign, if he is not in control, if he is not working all things according to the counsel of his will, then the pain and the suffering and the loss is all meaningless and purposeless. Do you understand that? If, if it's an accident, if it's a cosmic failure, if, if God wishes that he could do things better but that he can't, then we have no reason to hope for anything. But if God is sovereign, and if he is in control, and if he is working all things according to the counsel of his will, then even pain and even suffering and even loss are not meaningless and purposeless. In fact, they are in and of themselves accomplishing God's purpose and will. 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul says, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Suffering and loss is not meaningless, it is not purposeless. Even in the hard times, even in the dark times, 
<coughs> even in the face of death. God has a purpose and a plan. We need only look to the cross of Jesus to see this so clearly. The darkest moment in all of human history, at the center of our faith, exists a crucified Savior, the Son of God, bleeding and dying on a cross. God entering into our suffering, entering into our darkness, taking upon Himself our sin, suffering for us, taking our pain, taking our punishment. What the Bible tells us is the cross wasn't an accident. It wasn't a failure. The cross was the predetermined plan of God from all eternity. It means before God ever said, let there be light, He had planned to send the light of Jesus into our dark world. Before God ever created the world, before God ever formed man, before Adam and Eve ever sinned against God, God had already planned and predetermined that he was going to send Jesus Christ to die in the place of sinners. So we must dispel of the idea and the notion that whatever pain we must experience in this life, that it is meaningless and that it is, that it is purposeless. It is not God has a purpose in all things. That even on the dark days, God is still in control. Especially on the dark days, we need to remember that God is in control. And that He is fulfilling His plan. And that God is working all things according to the counsel of His will. Not our will, but His will. For His glory and for our good. That's the promise of God, that for those who love God and who are called according to His purpose, that God is working all things for our good. Now, guess what? We might not see that until we make it to eternity. Stephen didn't see how God worked what happened to him for his good until he got to eternity. And so we need to be patient with the Lord. We need to walk by faith, trust in Him, even in the darkness. Hold close to Him, hold tight to Him, hold close to His Word. We don't understand the things that our sovereign God does all the time, but what His Word declares to us, what He has chosen to reveal to us, is that even in the darkness, He's there. Even in the hard times, he's there. Even that when we don't understand why he would allow this or that to happen, that it, he's not far away from us, but he's right there with us. Amen. Finally, I want to bring your attention back to Philippians chapter 1. Not for a long time, don't worry. <laughs> Just for one word. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Most Bible translations will translate the Greek word doulos as either bondservants or servants. 
And the reason that they do that is because we have a very, um, in, in, in Western world and culture, slavery, the word slave comes with a lot of really horrific baggage. Especially our, our context and our concept of slavery is shaped by the slavery of the South and the horrors and the evil that it was. Nevertheless, the right translation of the word here is not servant. The right translation of the word here is not bondservant. The right translation is slave. What Paul is saying is that Jesus owns me. Jesus owns my life. I belong to him. My life is not my own. Even my own body is not my own. My possessions are not my own. Even the breath in my lungs is not my own. I belong to Jesus. Do you belong to Jesus? Do you belong to Jesus? You know, when we come to Christ, we must come as broken, humbled sinners. We don't come as people who have it all together, who just need our ticket to heaven punched. That's not how this works. If, if, if that's how you came into the kingdom of God, you have a horf, horrifically distorted picture of Christ. Christ is not the guy. He's not the, the, the train conductor who punches your ticket. He is your master, and he is your Lord, and he owns your life. Not only because he is your creator, he owns everyone's life, but he has purchased you back from Satan with his own blood. Creator and redeemer. Amen. What this means is that we say, where you want me to go, I'll go. What you want me to do, I'll do. What you want me to say, I'll say. Anywhere, anytime, any place. Jesus, your Lord of my finances. Jesus, your Lord of my marriage. Jesus, your Lord of my career. Jesus, your Lord of my children. Jesus, your Lord of my body. Jesus, your Lord of my eyes. Jesus, your Lord of my entertainment. Jesus, your Lord of my time. Jesus, your Lord of everything in my life. Amen. I'm a slave of Christ. I'm not just a servant of Christ. Whatever he wants for me, whatever his destiny is for me, it is the best destiny that you could have. Stephen didn't make it to heaven and say, man, God, you really kind of shortchanged me there. I had a lot of plans. I had a lot of things I wanted to accomplish. No, Stephen made it to heaven and he fell at Jesus' feet. He said, thank God I got to get up here so quickly. Who is your Lord? You're going to serve somebody. You're going to be someone's slave. 
You'll either be the slave of the, the principality and power of this world, darkness, Satan, under his rule, reign, and authority, or you'll be the slave of Jesus Christ. I pray like me you can confess that Jesus is Lord. And I know like me also that every single day is a fight and a battle to make that confession a reality in our lives. Amen.